Crypto markets are still reeling from the collapse of FTX and Celsius and Voyager and Genesis and BlockFi and 3AC and Luna and probably a hundred other smaller companies you've never even heard of. So it's pretty, pretty hard to imagine that we're not going to see more contagion and other exchanges and platforms potentially collapsing. I guess then the question becomes, who is next? I have some guests today who may have some thoughts on that. We're also going to, of course, talk about what's going on with FTX and SBF and the market in general. Today, I've got Raul Paul, Mike Alfred, and Lex Sokolin. You guys definitely do not want to miss this. Thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and go ahead and hit that like button. As I said, the crypto market still continues to feel the tremors from all of the insolvencies and collapses that we've seen. And of course, now we also have uh, the Grinch, Jerome Powell, showing up and telling us that the Fed is going to be continuing to raise rates until I don't know, 2047. Uh, it feels like they're going to continue to do it forever until they get to a rate of 15%. Everything dies and breaks and it's over. It's really not that bad. But obviously, we did see that Bitcoin was trading pretty nicely, looking much more bullish. And then within 30 seconds of the announcement was right back to where it started the day. We'll talk about that and a lot more with today's amazing guests. I've got Raul Paul, Mike Alfred, and Lex Soakland. Gentlemen, how are you all doing today mike i know you're up early as usual on the west coast so thank you and lex this is your first time here so uh special special welcome <laughs> to you oh thank you mike i gotta go right to you okay obviously you have some pretty strong thoughts as to what exchange is likely to be next or at least is likely <clears throat> to eventually fail you've been talking quite a bit about binance you even uh sent a tweet in all caps get your money off of binance right now Right. So it's very hard, I think, in our position to separate your favorite word, FUD. I know you hate the word FUD, but FUD uh, from fiction, fact from fiction. So what are you seeing there that has you so convinced that Binance could potentially be next? Yeah. So, Scott, first off, I just want to say, um, you know, I've never shorted Binance. Uh, right. I've never shorted any crypto token. Um, I also want to say that I take no joy whatsoever in seeing Celsius, BlockFi and other uh, lenders and exchanges in the space go down. Uh, when you look at Binance at a high level, it is probably one of the most nefarious uh, actors in this space. If I gave you the fact pattern, and there's a hundred things, if I gave you the fact pattern for any other company outside of magic bean trading, uh, let's say it was a plumbing company or a pizza company or a trucking company, and I said, hey, this is the fact pattern, you'd say, holy shit, that's a fraud. You would know it right away. Any good investor who sees the fact pattern at Binance would know that. So why do we have a company that uh, accounts for 50 or 80% of all the trading volume, depending on what you're looking at that has no domicile, right? Every time they are actually approached about doing any sort of regulatory uh, improvement, they move, right? Why, why, do they not, why do they not identify their corporate parent, uh, right? We don't even know who actually owns Binance. They have no CFO. They have no corporate governance information anywhere, right? You don't know who the investors are. They've never done a full audit despite custodying over $50 billion in assets. I can go on. There's about 100 things. But at the end of all that, what I get to is here's a company that's fractional reserving the assets. They're taking in deposits in different denominations. They're systematically re-denominating those assets into their own homegrown shitcoins. 
and they're certainly not solvent. If there's a run on BNB or BUSD, or if at any point people try to withdraw the USDC that they've taken and loaned out to other parties. Um, and so I'm, I am absolutely certain that this is a company that at some point is going to have severe issues and will be forced not just to close withdrawals for USDC as they did the other day, but potentially for the entire platform. I don't know if that's tomorrow, next week, a month from now. I'm not, I'm not saying that you're going to lose all your money in the next week because nobody knows that for sure because they're large. But I'm saying that if you have money on there, you should be deeply concerned. CZ is openly said that they're not lending their funds. So I haven't seen that evidence, but I, I, I would definitely not. In the, audit, in the report that they just published, which by the way, was not an audit, they actually admitted to lending out Bitcoin. So what do we, I don't understand why people, how people can read literally what it says in the report that they've loaned out 20 or 30,000 Bitcoin and then say they're not lending. Like, are you going to listen to what the guy says? Or are you going to look at what's actually happening? Right. And I think everybody's deluding themselves on this. Binance is not a good actor, period, end of story. And so don't regurgitate that talking point because it's not true. Well, that's why that's why I asked. Raul or Lex, do either of you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Mike said. You would never do business with somebody of which you don't have any governance whatsoever, know who any of the investors are, know where any of the money is. It's not regulated by anybody in any way, shape or form and give them your money. Okay. It's kind of ludicrous. I actually am one stage thinking it's bigger than that and that it's actually a, a state enterprise for China. Um, and I think the crypto markets are being bifurcated into two trading zones, much like they want with the currency markets overall. They want a Chinese block and a Western block. And I feel like that is the battle that's playing out in front of our eyes, which is which is Binance and potentially Coinbase and a few others on the Western side. But, you know, if you're a Filipino or you're a Brazilian or whatever, you use Binance. I mean, there's just nobody else to go to. And so they they have a huge part of that. I think, and we've seen already with Tether, that even the Chinese have said, oh, people are using Tether for money laundering. We kind of, everybody knows that capital flight in China leads to money coming out. And there's, I think they've been using hedge funds as well. Uh, something I can't don't really want to talk about, but I think that some of the largest hedge funds have been involved in that too. And I think Binance is involved in that. I think it's a way of taking money out of the Chinese system for the leadership and others, and also having control of the digital economy as it develops. And I think they know that. So, you know, I think, so whether it goes bust or not, different because we don't know who that backer is. If it's a sovereign state, it probably won't go bust. But you're giving your money to a sovereign state. It's kind of it's dangerous and we don't need it. I mean, this is what I don't get. Sure, I've got a Binance account. I can trade, just take my tokens off. It's all over and done within five minutes. From five minute exposure. But why, why do people... I mean, I got into this space because of what happened in 2012 in Europe when the banking system went under in 2008 that we can self-custody assets. So that's the killer app of crypto. And yet everyone just goes, la, 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 I can't hear you. I'm just going to leave my stuff on Binance because I can't be bothered to figure out how to plug in a ledger. I mean, really, guys? This, it's yeah. inexcusable. Use it for trading, like an exchange. You don't store your, your futures on the CME. They get cleared and custody in a regulated entity. Well, we can do it ourselves. So you can go there, trade, do what you want, use any counterpart you want, and then take it off. Simple. Max? Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I, I come at um, this industry from a slightly different um, mental model, but 
I agree with uh, some of the things that Raul said about bifurcation uh, and the bifurcation that I see is between um, the Web3 ecosystem with ETH and the rollups on top and, and all the software there, and then um, Binance Smart Chain, which as um, let's call it a venue, uh, is, is actually moving a lot of transactions, um, increasingly more transactions. And so there, there are these two different ecosystems, but um, some are more decentralized and some are more anti-fragile and then others are much more closely held. So, you know, I, it's it's hard to speculate on the fog of what Lex, the exchange is, but I think, yeah, go ahead. Lex, who's building on the on the Binance chain? Where is this activity coming from? You know, yeah, Ethereum we know, yeah. right? It's pretty obvious we see it, but but where is it? Um, well, it, it's, it's the, the problem of garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you put um, low quality data on chain, you don't know the quality of the data until often it's too late, but you can put low quality data on chain and it may look like a lot of activity, right? So if you look at Solana, for example, once the FTX involvement turned off, the, uh, the TVL collapsed uh, entirely. And the sort of the architecting of transactions and NFT projects, quote unquote, has also collapsed um, quite a bit. But um, you know, the other thing I wanted to agree with you on is around um, self custody. Uh, it, it is like we're seeing enormous uh, flows out of exchanges, and I hope that the shortcut everyone's been taking of like on ramping to crypto, but not like not even thinking about what crypto is for, not even trying to use any of it and just trading tokens around. Um, I hope people are starting to at least understand, like it's it's almost like the the problem that crypto was trying to solve, crypto created and put on a pedestal in order to teach people exactly what they shouldn't be doing. Uh, and of course, self-immolated as a result of that. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's, yeah, I think that that's completely accurate. And I, I love the silver lining being that perhaps people will self-custody more, go back to the original ethos and to Raul, Raul's point that hopefully they will use exchanges for their purpose, not as banks and custodians, but rather simply a place to trade and to be your on and off ramp. Because I really do believe that we need that, right? That that is an important feature and function in crypto. But maybe you guys have a little more uh, faith in humanity than I do, because I think in my mind, this will be a very temporary move to self-custody. And once we get another bull run and FOMO, people will go right back to the same behavior. Well, because don't forget, Scott, is every time you're bringing on, you know, by the next bull run, just by the magnitude of the adoption curve, right? You, you've got another 600 million people to come. You've got to educate them all over again. And humans being humans <laughs> will make the same mistake every cycle. I've been in this since 2013. Yeah. Every time an exchange goes bust at the bottom of the cycle and everyone learns the same lesson all over again because they're all new participants. Mike, let's say we break this down to the roots and we do see continued failures and more contagion from this. What what should this industry look like moving forward once we've sort of washed out all of the leverage and bad actors? Because it's hard for me to imagine, again, that we build this back the way that it was supposed to be done and don't just continue to repeat Lehman Brothers 2008 and crypto 2022. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, the free market has to decide. I, I I don't get to decide. You don't get to decide. The U.S. government doesn't even get to decide. 
exactly what that looks like, right? And so we can do all the things we want right now to try to uh, stop Binance from doing what they're doing, right? They're they're taking the the de- they're taking the deposits and they're denominating BUSD and they're claiming that's a Paxos uh, stablecoin when in fact they separately wrap their own version of BUSD, leveraging their regulatory brand of Paxos and saying maybe this is one of the primary reasons why people think Binance is okay. They say, well, BUSD isn't issued by Binance. That's completely untrue, Scott. I, I hope you understand that that there's two different versions of BUSD. In fact, there's multiple different versions because Binance is wrapping a pegged version of BUSD and, and they're wrapping it on other chains like Avalanche, right? And so that version is not backed one-to-one. It's not uh, you know, taken care of and regulated by Paxos. And so as more and more of their reserves go to that, then you know, at some point there's going to be issues there. And so how do you regulate that? I, I'm not sure because, again, Binance doesn't want to be regulated. They systematically chose to move around the world in a way that now you can't find them at all. And so they're not accountable uh, to anything. So I, Scott, I don't know if there's an answer, right? The free market will decide. People will, as you said, continue to make the same mistakes. There'll be another Binance five years from now. There'll be five more Binances maybe, but hopefully people will learn the lesson of decentralization that Lex and others are trying to teach and, and people will actually learn how to use these protocols properly. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But like I said, we still need an on and off ramp, right? So no matter where you are in the world, at some point you need to get your cash in and get your cash out. There, there so are regulated Coinbase in the United yeah, States, and exactly. is that the there, answer? There, there, reg- yeah. The the answer is that the on and off ramp should be regulated. They should be probably tied into the traditional banking system, I and mean, that's where the money's coming from, right? If you take your U.S. dollars and you ship it to Coinbase, that all happens through sort of the traditional banking rails, and for the most part, that has worked. Uh, people don't like it. People don't like Brian Armstrong and the Bitcoin Maxi community, but that's sort of neither here nor there because they haven't screwed anybody. It's these offshore companies who, uh, companies like Binance and FTX and Crypto.com who sometimes kowtow to the whole idea of the Bitcoin Maxi ideology, but otherwise are actually behaving in a way that's more fiat than anybody else. Definitely more fiat than Coinbase because when people lose their money, that's the most fiat thing that could possibly happen to you. Um, so I think the, the Maxis need to, to get this right too because a lot of them are railing on Coinbase when Coinbase is one of the only exchanges that's actually done what they said they were going to do and held the assets one-to-one and never did any lending. Crypto.com survived a bit of their own bank run, at least for now as well. And so now people are pointing at any criticism of a Binance or someone else and saying, but look, we just criticized and fudded, you know, this other exchange and they were fine. But they're not fine. (laughs) Just because they're still seemingly operating, like BlockFi was operating for nine months as a zombie company. Uh, they were dodging bullets. I mean, I, they, I they were they were the techni- they were technically insolvent eighteen months ago, right? And so, just look, the retail consumer in this space has no idea what's going on inside of these companies. So, like, what they're saying on Twitter is almost irrelevant, right? Because Crypto.com still technically operating does not mean they're solvent. I'm ninety five percent certain that they are not solvent right now. So, if there was even a slightly uh, a slight uptick in the number of people who want to take their coins back out of Crypto.com, they don't have all the coins. I think that's very, very clear based on their behavior recently, the moving of billions of dollars of stable coins around the space in and out of FTX and other exchanges, the movement of 80 plus percent of their Ethereum, right, out of their own wallet into another exchange's wallet. What do you think they're doing? Right. It's very clear to me that something's wrong there. There's smoke coming out of the building at crypto.com. And so this idea that they're fine because they're still operating, it's complete and utter bullshit. Period. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. So, the next 
I think obvious question then is how much damage has this done long-term? I mean, Raul, I'll ask you because obviously you've talked at length about the adoption curve of Bitcoin, of Ethereum, of the space in general. Do you think that there's been a fundamental change to that argument at this point with all the washouts or is this sort of a separation of humans and the technology that we need to be able to bifurcate? Again, I've kind of lived through this a lot, whether it's in crypto and traditional markets. I was heavily involved when long-term capital management, the giant hedge fund went under. That brought down about 20 hedge funds at the time. And it was so catastrophic that the Federal Reserve had to bail out the banking system. The outcome then was anger, despair, hatred, hedge funds, leverage, opaque vehicles. Nobody should be allowed to invest. How dare you put your pensioners' money into it? What happened was actually regulation and the size of assets in hedge funds tripled in four years. Then Bernie Madoff came. It's a scam. It's a Ponzi. There's, it's all opaque. It's a terrible business. Nobody should put their pensioners' money into it. What happened? Regulation. It 5 x after that in size to $3 trillion. So actually, the regulation is a good thing. I know a lot of people in this space don't like regulation, but you can't have it both ways. You cannot want to exist on-ramping and off-ramping from a fiat world and not have regulation. It's as simple as that. Um, and so when that comes, which it will, it's just a matter of who wins the fight between the CEC and the CFTC, there will be an answer, and that will give everybody comfort in the space to get in. So I don't think it changes the adoption curve. It's no different than Mount Gox going, which is actually bigger because it was a bigger part of the market. It yeah. would be like the equivalent of FTX and Binance going under at the same time. Now, that may be happening if, if Mike's right. And maybe but, Coinbase. You know, and maybe Coinbase. And maybe Coinbase, the, right? It was top. everything. Yeah. Right? I was lucky. I was with ItBit, which uh, Chad Cascarilla, who founded Paxos, had um, started. And I was I was out of the whole thing, luckily. Um, but, you know, we saw it with Bitfinex as well. They were huge when they went, you know, insolvent. So we've seen it a number of times before. It doesn't stop the space. Um, it's usually just... When the tide goes out, and that's usually when monetary liquidity is withdrawing from the system, you see who's swimming naked. And it's always, it, listen, it's a really simple thing, Scott. You do not ever build a business of leverage on an asset of a collateral that is 100% volatility. That's fucking insanity. Because it will, probabilistically speaking, force you into insolvency, guaranteed. <laughs> Now, that's why real estate has leverage, because it's very non-volatile. It's maybe a half a percent volatility asset or a one percent volatility asset. This is a hundred <laughs> times more volatile. And idiots think every time, you know what we need to do is build leverage on a hundred volatile asset and then wonder why they blow up and go, really, guys? It's pretty obvious. So anyway, that's my learnings that regulation will A, stop the, the leverage um, in certain ways or reduce the leverage. For in line with the the, the underlying volatility and sort out properly client segregation of funds. I mean, I was also caught up in MF Global, which was at the time was massive as a futures brokerage. It was bloody John Corzine, my old boss from Goldman Sachs, who was the governor of New Jersey. He stole the customer money to take bets on European government bonds. And he was a fully regulated futures brokerage. I mean, this humans do this stuff. Give them anywhere, a cent of money anywhere, and they will abuse it.
the good news is that those people, those investors were eventually made whole, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that actually had a, at least a bit of a happy ending. Yeah, but, we don't uh, know. You know I mean? We don't, don't, don't forget, we don't know what is the, what we're going to recoup from FTX. We have no idea yet, um, whether it's a donut or whether there's 40% to come back. We just don't know. I, unfortunately, I'm predicting donut. But Lex, what are your thoughts on, uh, I, I just am. I mean, whether the, the remaining assets were hacked, right? I mean, whatever was there to distribute to customers was basically removed immediately after the bankruptcy. So I don't really see much hope there, but you, ne you never know what can happen. I mean, Lex, do you agree that regulation is basically the only way forward for this space, at least for the on and off ramps? I mean, I think to me, that's very clear, but... Yeah, I, I think um, you need to put down a couple of distinctions. Um, and you did by saying on and off ramps. Um, but I think maybe making those more those distinctions a little bit more obvious, right? So uh, Raul's examples of financial services companies blowing up, whether they're asset managers or whether they are margin desks or, or lenders or capital markets desks. Um, and then... Uh, Mike made a point about magic beans, which I think was sort of uh, maybe self-critical of the crypto industry, but I think is also very fair. Um, and so the way I've the way I um, have walked myself through this time uh, is thinking about um, like operating economic activity that generates GDP or is valuable or there's some sort of commerce and consumer surplus in, in the exchanges between the things people make and the, the things that people buy, right? And then separate and apart from that, the financial services industry that grows up around it in order to catalyze it. So if we look around the world, you know, in, in some countries we'll say, people are unbanked or they're underbanked. And if only they could have access to credit, then we would have financial inclusion and they would have like a fantastic time and, and have an economy and build businesses. And then on the other side of it, we might look um, at an economy and say, look at all these derivatives. Everybody's over levered. It's an over financialized economy, right? So there's, there's some magic number between 10 and 20% of GDP where the financial services industry is, um, you know, symbiotic with the actual underlying economic activity that it accelerates or funds um, and is not parasitic um, in the way that for crypto, the, the, financial, the financial sort of architecture and particularly the, the centralized financial architecture has become relative to the Web3 economy and the attempts to actually build stuff. I mean, if you look at DeFi relative to like holders of Ethereum, DeFi is five to ten percent in terms of the, the the users that are using it. It's the stuff outside the um, the attempt to build Web three, which has deeply financialized things, and the shape of it looks to me also exactly like prior financial crises. And so the the two examples, let's say Enron and the the scams around the energy markets, didn't mean that people don't need energy. Uh, Lehman and the underlying exposure to housing and the poor structuring of financial instruments related to housing didn't mean people don't need houses. And similarly, the like in the exact same thing as it relates to um, crypto protocols and that archi architecture being used to build digitally native economies. 
like the the failure of that financial system doesn't tell me anything about whether that architecture is fruitful or not and i think and Lex, um, also, that's the hard distinction to make and also lex early on in any economy so whether it's the us economy or the british economy or any of these the financial system usually fails a couple of times as people are building they create the wrong risk they don't understand you know, it's, it's actually pretty common, you know, 1929 and the banking crisis that went before it was pretty common at that early stage. Because what you do is get the rampant speculation that uses the leverage, the underlying principle, which is this economy is going somewhere. And therefore, you know, as you say, finance will help it along in its journey, gets lost in the speculation of the orgy of leverage. But in the end, the journey still continues. Yeah, the interesting question talking about regulation, and I also agree with everything, Lex, that you just said. When it comes to regulation, I mean, I've made the argument, and a lot of people have, is that they should have already done it and have forced a lot of these issues by pushing everybody offshore into these shadier bad actors. Why aren't on and off ramps already regulated? I mean, Gary Gensler would now change tune and tell you that he has all of the power and law behind him that he needs to regulate the crypto industry. But we still haven't seen anything giving any clarity as to what anyone can do in the United States. That's the first point. And the second is we're obviously talking about all of this in a very United States centric manner, but we're not going to get regulation in every country in the world on, on and off ramps of crypto. And the people who need this technology and the, these assets the most are going to be in those places. Uh, that was a lot, but do you think that the SEC and the CFTC are complicit in this, having not given regulation? And do you think that now they will offer it, or do you think they'll continue to just let it sort of suffer and die on its own? My view on this is Gensler should have... Gensler's the person who's held this up. The CFTC would have done this a while ago, and they regulate exchanges. It's their bloody job. But Gensler's been... You know, I'm sorry, but he should take a lot of blame for this. And I know there's no point pointing fingers at each other, but people like Brian Armstrong has gone to them repeatedly and say, you need to sort this out. And he's like, we will sue you in retrospect and we won't make a ruling on anything. <laughs> and nobody's going to rule whether it's a fucking security or it's not a security. I mean, it's Ever. insanity. And I'm sorry, but he's got the blood on his hands of the people who lost money. And he needs to own some of this because it was his fault if there's anybody to blame in why people within the US got hurt. Why did they go outside and use VPNs to use um, FTX? Well, because of the regulatory lack of clarity on the ability to do anything in the US itself. Now, at least Europe is a bit clearer. Singapore's great. Dubai's pretty good. Everyone's got, Japan's getting their clarity. It's only India, really, and the US. It's a total swamp still trying to figure this out. And that's hurting people. Right. So I guess the question is, is that intentional? Uh, in the case of Gensler, I feel like it's absolutely intentional. Because you don't say, come on in, talk to us, get regulated. And then, as you said, on their way out the door, tell them you're going to give them no clarity, but you're also going to sue. Look, the and you also might be, able to hang him on, you might be able to hang him on the fact that he's been meeting with SBF. We'll see. And failed. To see it entirely, right? I, or I he think saw that, it. <laughs> I, mean, I think the astute politicians will use this to the advantage. 
I don't know, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, just I just think one of the smoking guns here is the way he handled the ETF. In the U.S., he, he allowed futures-based ETFs, which are inferior products, uh, but Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is still a closed-in fund. That product is the epicenter of a lot of the destruction that happened in this space. It's, it's one of the things that felled Celsius, BlockFi, and Three Arrows. They all got trapped and you know, it was their fault. They, they poorly structured an arbitrage trade that was limited in capacity and then they all got trapped, right? It's a classic uh, thing that happens. But um, none of that would have been possible if the SEC would have just allowed GBTC to convert to an ETF and trade it now. So I think, yeah, I would go back to the points that were just made around Gensler and say that's it's not just the FTX situation. It's not just uh, the the lobbying you know, and, and not, not being responsive to that in terms of regulating exchanges properly it's also the way they've re- regulated or not regulated an etf in the u.s and and so i think it, looking back we'll be able to say gensler is one of the S- worst sec chairs in the history of the country it's interesting because you you have these like um you've got these feedback loops and it's it you you can attach yourself to any of them to be causal but they are just they are just like circular feedback loops right so there's retail demand and retail demand, I think, is is very structurally determined. So the the shape of regulation and the shape of the options gives sort of a labyrinth through which demand flows. But then the the demand itself embedded into it are like these insane behavioral preferences, right? So like if you take forget crypto, you take Web two and you give somebody the option of like a flashing video with a red or green button and numbers that blink around versus giving somebody a book, like everyone presses the buttons and like 99.9% of people just like go froth at the mouth and go insane, right? And like, that's because it makes them feel super good. And then in crypto, the equivalent of that is like, all right, you want to hold Bitcoin or you want to try some apps on Ethereum? Like go buy the token and use it a bit and see how that goes. And ins- and ins- and instead, and if you want to be safe, like maybe give them your KYC information. And instead what people do is like, which exchange has the shortest sign up with no KYC AML of any kind. So that one's going to win because it's like fast. It's like Google search. What's the fastest search, right? Well, it's the, the exchange that has zero of anything other than your email. And it can be an anonymous email. And then number two is like, go to the exchange that has 100 times leverage on the silliest things. Like you can't have five times leverage. That's not good enough. You can't have 30 or 40. You need 100 times leverage, right? So you have, you have people self-selecting that version of financial products. And so if everyone self-selects those financial products, the entrepreneurs will build you the thing that you're worthy of, right? You deserve FTX if you don't want to fill out a KYC AML form and are really excited about trading 100x leverage on tokens worth like 10 million bucks. And so, but the thing is like, who's, who's to blame? It's not the individual's behaviors that's the crowd is it this the structure of the industry well the structure of the industry relates to the demand and the regulation that's around where does the regulation come from well it's like the the politics of the things above where do the politics come from from the crowd so you know i've got i have trouble saying like this is this is a uniquely bad actor because it's it's really like the self-fulfilling loop um and so you do need better structural solutions i think a bitcoin etf would have 
really de-risked a lot of crypto. Um, but but again, it, it's hard to kind of pin it for me on on one causal effect. Well, and there's there's structural issues with this space broadly that have been revealed over the last year in the sense that all of these firms are doing business with each other in an incestuous ways. And even within firms, you know, have DCG with a bunch of intercompany loans and there's all kinds of related party transactions and all kinds of conflicts of interest. It, it really does feel, and I am long-term bullish on Bitcoin, by the way, but it does feel like this whole space is some sort of self-referential Ponzi scheme where everything that's happening is in relation to everything that everybody else is doing in a direct feedback loop where, you know, if Binance were to go down, it would take out five or 10 others. FTX going down has taken out BlockFi and will probably take out Genesis. And, you know, Three Arrows going down was because of Terra Luna, which was because of uh, Three Arrows, right? Like <laughs> you draw these lines and, and they're all pointing back to each other and there's almost no connectivity with the real economy whatsoever. And so that, that has to change, I think, next cycle. Like at some point, there needs to be more connectivity to the real economy, to the real world. And we need to be more careful about supporting companies um, that don't provide the transparency so that you can see that they're adding real economic value and they're not just, you know, an internal Ponzi scheme. I mean, SPF's been in jail for all of uh, under a week. And we already have now regulators, legislators trying to take advantage, obviously, of this moment to come in as aggressively as we can. I'm sure you all saw Elizabeth Warren and... Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Roger Marshall, who's a Republican, uh, proposing the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act, which basically, I mean, I'll sum it up for you. Nobody's going to be able to do anything ever again if an act like this passed. It won't. It won't, right? This is lame duck. It's a political move. I think that Elizabeth Warren has passed literally less than 1% of the bills that she's ever proposed uh, in the first place. But basically saying that everyone would have to be KYC and AML'd, every exchange, platform, wallet, Protocol, obviously impossible. It would effectively kill the industry. But it seems like they're trying to take this moment to come in as hard as they possibly can, right? Scary. Anyone? They will I'm try. Of Apple. Of Apple, interesting. Yeah, because for the, the government has to go through a political process and then legislate squishy words on paper and then try to enforce things through actions that have lags. Um, Apple just updates its policies and turns off NFT movement. You know, like it, it I, I'm far, I think. I think people are missing that the two big tech firms, you know, the, the Android operating system and iOS is a a more deeply fundamental threat to web3 being able to build in the direction of its own architecture um and and that's that's kind of what freaks me out because if you don't have actual progress at that layer of digital objects and economies and like on-chain native transactions and commerce. Like if that doesn't get fixed, all this trading of tokens is super irrelevant because that's just financing. Um, and so that that's why, you know, I'm 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 pretty worried about the 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 operating systems. I mean interesting, I've spoken a lot to all of the big web web two platform teams, right? And there there's a lot of really good web three people who are really pushing hard to change it. And I think they get it. I've not heard from a single person from Apple. And I've spoken to all the others at, at length. Not one person from Apple has come into my ecosystem to say, hey, we're looking at this, which is, you know, it's interesting because they, I mean, Facebook learned that even they don't own their own 
ability to to thrive and survive apple had them by the throat they didn't even realize it the app store is so powerful elon uh you know Ep uh, epic all of it nothing yeah and i and i think i mean i think it's a it's a very exciting place for companies like apple and others to go but i think the way that they go there who knows how it's going to be right like if if you're if your mode of building is to walled garden everything even if you're very benevolent like you're you're not going to want the anarchy of innovation and evolution that the, the way that web3 brings it forward um, mike i want to ask you a question because we all focus on the negative and all these collapses and the things that could happen moving forward. But there's also been a lot of good news this year, right? <laughs> Specifically from Wall Street and the institutional side. I mean, Fidelity and BlackRock. I mean, the biggest asset managers in the world are making access to this asset class e easier than ever before. And with all of these collapses that are already happening and the ones that potentially will follow, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for distressed assets, right? I mean, miners, obviously, with hash rate being exceptionally high and miners looking to declare bankruptcy potentially or become insolvent. So the question is, now that we're seeing all of these institutions flooding into the space and offering these services, and we're seeing a somewhat of a collapse of the industry, do you think that Wall Street or these companies are going to end up controlling the bulk of this industry? I mean, I've seen rumors that 0.72 is raising over a billion dollars to buy distressed crypto assets. Is this the way that Wall Street finally sort of comes in and, and sweeps up the sweeps up the trash? I don't know. <laughs> I, look, I, like Vanguard owns, they're like one of the biggest shareholders of most American companies, and that's just the nature of of indexing. You know, if you put all your money into Vanguard, uh, over time they're going to own. You know, BlackRock and Vanguard together are going to own some big percentage of the equity markets. Is that necessarily nefarious? I don't know. Right, I but I, but I, but I do agree. I do agree that uh, we're coming to a good part of the cycle for long-term value investors. Right, so I've been watching the Bitcoin miners very closely. Obviously, I'm on the board of one of the publicly traded ones, Iris Energy, and we just recently, in a sense, cleared uh, a big chunk of our our debt because our, the debt was in SPVs. Those SPVs only held ASIC machines. When we decided that we couldn't afford to pay for those anymore, we're just essentially just giving them back uh, to the lender. And so we're clearing the deck and we're setting the stage for. Uh, the next part of the bull cycle where we'll be able to replace those machines and facilities that are still wholly owned uh, by us. Core Scientific yesterday, uh, you know, if you look at their bank, B. Riley, we also have a, a facility with B. Riley, by the way, but B. B. Riley, it's very atypical to see an investment bank come out and write a letter to shareholders. But that's exactly what B. Riley did. They wrote a letter to shareholders of Core Scientific and suggested that, in fact, Core Scientific is a great business and that they just need enough capital to get through the bottom of this uh, bear market. And I, I agree with that. I think there's a bunch of really high quality assets right now that are trading in in plain sight. They're trading at bankruptcy type levels where they're trading at a level where the market seems to think that they're going to zero. And it's very clear to me that some of them aren't going to zero. And these are potentially generational opportunities for investors. So while I am focused on uh, crypto.com and Binance and things like that, that I think are going to have to go down uh, to set kind of a fertile ground for the next bull market, I'm also looking at businesses that I think uh, look like good investments here. And if I can figure out a way for them to not file for bankruptcy, I think they could be 50 X's. I mean, B. Riley is basically offering Core Scientific $72 million, right? So uh, <laughs> it's a pretty strong endorsement of the business. You talk about the fact then that, you know, institutions are obviously seeing this generational buying act, uh, buying opportunity. Does that mean that retail, I mean, we can't obviously buy Core Scientific, but doesn't that make this 
at least begin to look like a good time to start investing for the next bull run. No financial advice here. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, you can buy core scientific. It's a penny stock. Yeah, it's trading right. at whatever thirty five cents. But you know, two days ago, it's trading at twelve cents, right? And when it despacked in January, it's trading at ten dollars. Um, there's no reason to believe if it doesn't go bankrupt, it won't be back at ten dollars at some point. Again, that's not financial advice. Um, but you know, if it doesn't go bankrupt, then there's a good chance that it'll be a good investment. Will retail uh, act on that? Probably not. Retail scared, uh, and rightly so, because most retail investors have either lost money uh, due to counterparty risk or because they owned a whole bunch of tokens that are down 95%. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if most retailers just go home and take their ball with them. Um, but it, funny enough, now is actually the time when professional investors should be working uh, because this is the time when actually all of the best returns will come out. If we look back three to five years from now, it'll be right now, right? And over the next six months, buying Bitcoin, buying miners, maybe buying Ethereum, maybe buying some other, uh, you know, doing some early stage investing again, if you can find companies that aren't trading at a series A at a 200 million pre, we can go back to a traditional $25 million pre like a Coinbase. Uh, you know, we, there were real returns back in these stocks again. So I'm looking around the market, I'm seeing rationality returning, uh, paradoxically, despite the pain, now is actually a great time to be in, in crypto. Uh, but again, you got to avoid the last few uh, shoes to drop here because I think there's going to be a handful of other things that happen. And that's where I think people are a little delusional. Right? Everybody wants to be pro-crypto and bullish on crypto, but to ignore the real risks that still remain, I think is a mistake. I agree. You're deep in the mining, in the mining, obviously, business. As you said, the news came out yesterday that TEPCO, which is the largest energy company in Japan, is going to be using all their excess energy uh, for Bitcoin mining, right? I mean, these are huge, huge things. We've seen Exxon make similar similar announcements. Does that fundamentally then change the mining business for the small guys who now maybe do get flushed out for good? I mean, it seems like being a retail miner, as much as ASICs are cheap right now, the, the business could be changing. Yeah, you need scale. And I've always, I think most of us who've been around the space for a few years, that you've always seen it as a convergence play, right? Where energy and, and Bitcoin mining are sort of one and the same at scale. Eventually, a lot of the ASICs will be owned uh, directly by large energy companies, right? And, and, and in a sense, Bitcoin mining does facilitate changes in the energy grid over time because Bitcoin miners are the, among the most responsive large-scale users of energy. And so you can use energy and it's location agnostic. You can scale up or down. You can use excess power. Like in, in the panhandle, there's 20 gigawatts of excess wind and solar. That's some of the uh, power we're using in our new Childress facility. We have 600 megawatts potentially coming online over over the next several years on a large facility there. So um, I'm really bullish on 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 that part of it. And I think you know over time, yeah, energy companies will control a bigger and bigger share of the Bitcoin mining space, and it it probably should be that way. Yeah. So listen, I intended to talk about SBF being arrested and Kevin O'Leary seemingly becoming a jackass and losing his mind and all the other bad things. But we have 15 minutes. Let's talk about all the things we're excited about that are still happening in, in this industry. Lex, you're deep, deep down the rabbit hole of what's being built. What should people actually be extremely excited about? Aside from the low prices and all of these washouts, what's being built? Are we still, you know, yeah. going to dominate the world? What, what can we look forward to? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll definitely take on that question. Um, I, I want to say that the, the main data point I, I need about retail investing is that Robinhood is launching retirement accounts to save, you know, to save their business. Um, and that tells you everything, you know, about, you know, the, the, 
psychology of the day trader right now. Um, <clears throat> SBF's retiring too. You know, it's it's uh, just uh, early. His, reti his retirement home looks like the worst on the planet, <laughs> by the way. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very effective. Um, all right. So what 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 are we excited about? Um, I think like it's it's under everyone's knows and it's obvious and it doesn't have to be magical and confusing and unknowable and some secret like strategic uh thesis um it's 2022 and i am still like giddy that ethereum underwent the merge um so there's like actual evidence of people being able to do um a core protocol upgrade on the the most you know used uh, computational blockchain while it's computing and i think that's amazing um i think all of the um it removes one of the objections at least you know so for for, for the web3 ecosystem it is important that other entrepreneurs and builders are happy to build on it and it is important what their beliefs are and for a bunch of the nft industry especially on the fine art side the esg uh narrative was a concern so whether or not it's factually true it doesn't matter what matters is that are people using it as a reason not to do things and so that's removed and i think it's fantastic um the other bits are that scalability and privacy keep coming up right as the other two things in the way and so scalability i mean again arbitrum and optimism are up and running uh rollups on ethereum they they're not sidechains they're not polygon they're not bsc they're not evm architecture that sort of has a bridge that can be hacked they are uh rollups and together they're adding 800,000 transactions a day to ethereum and that can go much much higher um, that's super exciting to me. It shows me that it's possible. It, it isn't just talking points that it is possible to improve scalability and drop gas to trivial numbers. Um, on the zero knowledge proof side, there's a whole bunch of progress. Um, you know, for, for us at consensus, we just released, um, ZK EVM testnet. Um, so there's, there's privacy around the corner, right? How exactly it looks, I don't know, but it, again, it's not a fantasy. So like, the, the base protocol is much more performant uh, and I think has removed a whole bunch of friction for people making stuff. And then the second second thing for me that is, you know, and again, like you don't have to look far, it's right there, is the what's going on with DAOs. And, and if you believe that Web3 needs an economy that and, and that all of that, yes, you need to pull in sort of like real economy stuff and Starbucks NFTs are cool and all of, all of that. Um, but if you want to see evidence of an economy being done in a digitally native way on chain, DAOs are your answer to that. They're like the small business unit of Web3. People are coming together. They're like generating treasuries. They're governing. They're building products. There is variety in the types of products that they build, whether it's interactive, whether it's social clubs, whether it's investment clubs. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that people are putting labor into and that other people are paying for. And so, you know, like the, the growth in DAOs and the growth in active governance and the scar tissue around trying to figure out governance, whether it's in Maker or Gitcoin, like ENS, I think it's fantastic. It's it's substantive work that's going on. Um, 
And so like from a fundamentals point of view, if again, if you're focused on that kind of building, like I, I think it's super exciting. Like it, it's definitely better than a year ago. It's definitely better than three years ago. Um, I think the the infrastructure is is much more real today. And, um, you know, for people following the space, I think they should be excited about it and use it. Raul, what has you excited right now? First, I'm excited about the macro because everybody absolutely hates it. I can see it on your face, Scott, and see it in your tweets, Scott. You just can't stand the name Jay Powell anymore. And I love those moments in time, right? Those are the turning points. It's when everything's been distressed, and I've been talking about this a lot. The cyclicality of crypto is driven by the monetary cycle. And then we've got the long-term trend of adoption. And when those two meet are the magic periods in time where the risk-reward goes exponential, right? And this is why crypto looks like no other asset. There was a great thing that Bloomberg put up recently, which is over the last 10 years, seven of the 10 years, Bitcoin's been the best-performing asset in the world as a proxy for the whole crypto space. In the three years that it wasn't, it was the worst. And, you know, it's buying the worst when you get this is an incredibly exciting opportunity. And and you don't get this kind of risk reward. So I really like it from an investment point of view. I think at a broader level, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background that is really interesting. I think ETH staking is still not realized what that means for the lending industry and being able to build um, better quality DeFi product with understandable risks because you've got a benchmark yield for the industry. And I think it's a hugely important thing. People don't know it, but you know that by the next cycle, by three or four years time, everyone's going to be familiar with that. How people can start pricing things of ETH yield plus. So then you know, oh, you know, Solana yields trading more expensively. Why? Because there's more risk in the ecosystem, whatever it is, right? Um, I think that's that's a very big deal. What products, what structured products and stuff that come out of that, that's interesting. I've spent, a, you know, a deep, deepening amount of time into the NFT space and just that nexus of music, art, technologists, um, finance people, just culture all coming together. I don't think it's, it's barely started. It's a magic moment in time. There's something really interesting going on. And obviously it's spinning out into brands using NFTs, whether it's Porsche, whether it's you know Nike, whether it's Adidas, whether it's others, what are they doing? How are they building community? Understanding co community as a new business model. This is a scalable, massive consumer application that is happening in front of our eyes. And Starbucks is right at the forefront of that, as are many other brands. Ticketmaster, I, I, and then this one in a lot, Ticketmaster has issued 10 million NFTs. Nobody would have thought they would be the leader. They are, right? So there's a lot going on in building out that uh kind of social graph. And I think that's important for the layer of all of that money that went into VC. People think it's been nuked. It's not. Everyone's busy building stuff, right? And that stuff is being built on generally the consumer layer or the deep tech layer. Those two layers are very interesting. And Lex will know more about the deep tech layer, but the consumer layer, that's where the next breakthrough comes through when we stop caring what bloody chain something's actually on because we just want the digital asset or utility that we've got. And we, you know, everything becomes a lot smoother and all of that's extracted away. Digital ID is another big one that I'm very excited about that has to come. It's kind of urgent ahead of the US election with the amount of AI stuff. Uh, and then final one for me is I'm actually excited about regulation because I'm a mas masochist, but we kind of need it.
Yeah. So it sounds like you're, you've made the pitch before you and Jeff Dorman had an incredible conversation once uh, on a Thursday here, basically, you know, talking about the applications with Disney and all that huge companies that have their coins. None of that's changed for you very clearly. Nothing's changed. And none of the people, including the investor base, the, everybody from the hedge funds to the institutions, to the family offices, to the pension funds, they're all still doing the work. They're all still set up. All the, They're all sheep now, right? Right now, it kind of is the wrong moment unless you're brave. So the brave people will do it now. But really, once price turns up, they're all pile in. And, you know, that whatever it was, a peak at the last bull market, $3 trillion, will be minuscule compared to the peak at the next because of the sheer amount of capital that comes into this space. You know, you know, talking about Bitcoin miners, you know, I've been speaking to some of the biggest Middle Eastern economies. I mean, they get this. You know, they're building, you know, thinking about the gas flare-offs and what they can do with with um, with mining Bitcoin, they're thinking how they can hold it as part of their sovereign wealth fund in a much more meaningful way. It's all coming. People are just very impatient. They expect it to come tomorrow. And, you know, we've got to go through this despair loathing phase that, Scott, you're going through, as I can tell. Before you go back to the optimism phase and we can forget all about this and start counting every thousand as it goes up and putting laser eyes on the screen again. I think it's fair to say the despair phase is very real, but at least I'm cognizant of it and can uh, rationalize it in my mind. Mike, what are you looking forward to and, and, and what are you looking at right now that excites you? Well, I'm really excited. I mean, I, I am in the final stages of launching a new liquid hedge fund, which I got a, com a large commitment for when I was in Miami in October. I wasn't even pitching, by the way. I had no deck. I just got off stage. I was on stage with Nick Carter at a conference and somebody came up to me and said, hey, I want to write you a big check. What do you want to do? And I said, I don't want to start a liquid fund to take advantage of buying the dip over the next six to nine months, uh, partially in this ecosystem. So I'm doing um, doing traditional equities, so value equities in healthcare and staples, but also Bitcoin and Bitcoin adjacent equities in one portfolio structure with just one LP. Um, and so I'll be able to focus 100% on investing. And so I'll be buying a lot of the stuff that we uh, have been talking about over the next six months. I mean, we just mentioned Core. Core, core was up 72%. This morning, I was tweeting about it over the last few weeks just because if it didn't go bankrupt, it looked really interesting at a $50 million valuation when they're literally minting 50 Bitcoin a day right now. Like, so you just do the math on that. If they can figure out the debt situation, eventually that's a very valuable company. And I'm seeing like 10 or 15 ideas like that right now that are interesting. And whereas a year ago, I couldn't find anything to buy. So, from an investor standpoint, paradoxically, now again, this is one of the best times to be an investor and I'll be in the market with a new fund. So I, I can't get any, we can't get enough of this. Actually, I, I love this. Um, I don't not want to see the whole industry implode, but again, I'm not fully comfortable deploying all the capital into an environment until I see a handful of these additional bad actors get wiped out. I just don't think we're going to see a sustainable bull run. The market won't even allow it. I don't think until some of these bad uh, actors get wiped out. So that's, that's the primary thing I'm excited about. I just want to see that part of the process flip over so we can really rebuild on fertile ground. I mean, I'm getting the impression that everybody thinks that we should buy the dip. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I continue to make the point. I don't really care if Bitcoin 17 or 10 or 12 because the downside is so much less dramatic than the obvious upside. So uh, it's, it's all the same to me. $10,000 Bitcoin and $17,000 Bitcoin are effectively the same to me because I still believe it's going to 250, 500, or I'll even go out and still say in the depths of bear market, I think that we will one day see billion, uh, million dollar, not billion, uh, Fidelity said billion, million dollar Bitcoin. 
Well, guys, thank you so much uh, for joining. We are unfortunately out of time, so I feel like we could talk for for many, many more hours. Next time, Mike, I'm going to get CZ on here to talk to you. If he wants, I'd love to talk to CZ. I had you once on with Mashinsky uh, and Caitlin Long. Man, that was a that was fireworks. He he, that was a bad moment for him. Uh, that was a, that was a rough day. But all of you are, of course, welcome back. Everyone else, uh, I will be back tomorrow morning, uh, Friday. Of course, we do the weekend review of the news. Uh, should be fun because we have a lot to talk about. Once again, go follow uh, Lex, Raul, and Mike, please. And guys, hope to see you all soon. Everybody, thank you guys for joining. See everyone else tomorrow. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Let's do